Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. The December 2022 issue of Health Affairs features a collection of papers focused on how effectively and equitably income support programs pull families out of poverty so they're more likely able to live healthy lives. Programs such as the Earned Income Tax Credit and Temporary Assistance for Needy Families are supposed to do exactly that, but they don't always reach the people they're designed to serve, and there are long-documented racial and ethnic disparities in who enrolls in them and, for some programs, how they're treated when they enroll. Now, tens of millions of Americans are affected by these critical programs, so their proper functioning is essential to achieving the goal of health equity. How effective are income support programs in providing people with the foundation of good health? And what should we do to make them better? Those are the topics of today's episode of A Health Podacy. I'm here with Jennifer Nandu, Managing Director at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation of the Healthy Children and Families Program. Ms. Nandu and co-authors published an overview paper in the December 2022 issue of Health Affairs describing the relationship between income and health, and examining how key federal income support policies relate to positive health outcomes. Reviewing the evidence, they found that income and health are positively associated, but that factors like race, ethnicity, and geography affect access to income supports, thereby contributing to health disparities. We'll discuss these findings and their implications in today's episode. Ms. Nandu, welcome to the program. Thank you, Alan. It's so great to be here and to talk to you about this today. I'm looking forward to hearing your views on this because you come at this not just as a funder, but with some really interesting uh, experience as well. But let's start with a little bit of what's in the paper, which begins with describing what we know about the relationship between income, income supports, and health, and brings looks at all of this through the lens of equity. So if we just start with income and health, can you say a little bit about what we know about the relationship between having an adequate income and being able to be in good health and have a positive well-being? I'll start with the basics and just say people who have families who have adequate access to income or types of resources that act like income, like temporary assistance for needy families or the earned income tax credit, child tax credit, or the stimulus that we saw in the American Rescue Plan, are able to live healthier lives. They, they live longer, they're more likely to gain access to opportunities, um, and so their lives can be more fulfilling. And so when you think about it, income is one mechanism that is a great choice expander. Um, It's about where you live. It's about the social capital you can access, what schools your children will attend, or even as something as simple as whether you can take breaks and rest. You are less likely to experience what we call disease burden in many ways because you're both better able to access things that prevent illness in the first place, and you can better gain access to treatment when you are sick. And so I think about income and the income support programs that are designed to fill that gap as helping families complete their income and allow them to have more discretion to be able to have opportunities that keep they and their families healthy. I like this term choice expander. I haven't heard it before, and I think it's a great uh, way to capture. Uh, it's an oper- It 
creates opportunities for health that you don't have when you don't have the resources. And I'm also struck by uh, one part of what you said, which is that income is both protective in the sense that it gives you opportunities to do things that keep you healthy or may make you healthy, but it also gives you resources to respond to things that might have caused you to be in poor health so that you have better access to not just healthcare services, but any services that might uh, address those needs. So this it's a complicated relationship, but at some level, it's just also a simple relationship, which is that having more resources does give you more opportunity to be healthy. So given that, what do we know about the existence of programs designed to keep families out of poverty or to give them the resources that they need so that they have the choices that you've described? Do What are the key programs and how well do they function? What I will say um, without caveat is that social programs in this country that are designed to provide income support can and do positively influence health. Um, the papers in this supplement uh, focus on examining the impacts of the earned income tax credit and temporary assistance for needy families, but there's a whole host of programs um, that can enable better health or better opportunities for families across this country. They include things like the Supplemental uh, Nutrition Assistance Program or housing supports that actually help people find safe and stable housing. And what we know about those things is fewer financial stressors or concerns about safety in one's neighborhood can better can support better health. Um, being able to access healthier physical environments with clean air and safe drinking water support better health. Um, neighborhood amenities, um, being able to go to a grocery store and purchase healthy foods can lead to a more active and healthier lifestyle. So when you think about these programs, um, their ability to be that choice expander and to enable people to get the, the things that they need to live in dignity um, allows them not only to improve their health by making the healthiest choices possible, but it also improves their health by reducing the stressors in their lives uh, that can compound um, and create burdens in their life. So as you started, I was waiting for the but. Like, on the one hand, these are unambiguously positive. When you provide people with these supports, we know that they help people live healthier lives. But I, I was waiting for you to say, what's, what, what's not so unambiguous about these programs? Well, I mean, I will just say that um, no program is a cure-all. No program is a panacea. And these programs are imperfect. And so um, they don't reach families equitable. And in part, we need I need to stress that that's by design. Um, these programs were built out of a foundation of, in some ways, pathologizing people who are poor based on their behavior. And so there are often deep um, challenges and restrictions in these programs that means they stand in the way of people getting the things that they need. Um, so many people, for instance, who are eligible for EITC or TANF don't participate. And there are a lot of systemic reasons for this. Uh, first, we don't actually 
recognize families as they exist in this country. And these programs are built in ways and designed in ways that don't recognize how children are raised in this country. Families within LGBTQ plus family member, families where parents live in separate places, children raised by grandparents and aunties who are not legally recognized can all really struggle with access. Um, and so that's a good example of how we need to think about um, the barriers that stand in the way. Uh, I'll give another example, which is, I think we can all agree that filing our taxes is a challenging thing to do when you have low resources, uh, when you are poor, when you are low income, those hurdles become even bigger. And that issue of filing taxes is one of the things that keeps families from actually gaining access to these programs. I also want to stress that it doesn't have to be this way. Um, and during the pandemic, we actually saw a lot of innovation in particular in the child tax program, which actually establishes a source of income for families with children. And nearly 90% of families in this country were eligible. And what they did in the implementation of the expanded tax credit is they had the government be the administrator and basically determine that a lot of people had automatic eligibility for this program. It streamlined the way that families receive these resources. They were able to get cash in hand quickly. And we saw an abundance of ways in which families were able to, in very quick fashion, improve their health and so um, it's just important to understand, like, we have to, we have to think about how these programs were built, how they were designed, um, and whether they are truly fulfilling their missions um, to get resources into the hands of families who need them. Well, you've introduced a lot of dimensions of equity and inequity that uh, are tied to these programs. And I want to explore those with you. I want to look at some of the assumptions about people and some of the mismatch between people's circumstances and how programs are designed. I love that you gave the example of how we can do better. Uh, those are all topics I want to explore with you, but we'll do that after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Jennifer Nandu about economic well-being and health. Before the break, we were discussing the variety of programs that exist to provide income and income-like supports to low-income families. But we also introduced the reality that access to these programs is not equitable. Some of that lack of equity is actually by design. So there are a few threads that uh, you dangled in front of me right before the break that I want to follow a little bit farther. Uh, one is this notion of, of really pathologizing families and viewing poverty as a character flaw, um, which does have a long history in the thinking about uh, social supports in this country. I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about how that view of families manifests itself in some of the programs that uh, we've been discussing. It, this is a long and storied history, and it, it is the origin story of this country. And I actually just have to start with saying 
This is about our hit country's history of indentured servitude, slavery, uh, immigrant exploitation, and um, taking land from indigenous peoples. And I start there because you have to realize that our economic structure has been in some ways the de facto governance structure of our country. And what it's meant is we put far too much emphasis on the production of people instead of the vital role um, that people in this um, country play. Um, and so programs uh, in many ways are designed not to recognize families as they are um, and designed to break them apart. I'll give you a couple of examples of that. Um, one is that there's a very narrow and inaccurate definition of families that's codified in the tax code. And it often means that families, when they go to access programs, it's tied to a worker and it's highly dependent on that worker having access to a job, um, even if they're not able to in their neighborhood. Um, and um, that means that the eligibility requirements are often complex, they're arcane, and they stand in the way of people getting resources when they fall in hard times. And so one example of that is in the Affordable Care Act. Um, health insurance follows an individual and not a family. And so many families have a lot of trouble sort of figuring out how they access um, the health care options, the subsidies, the good tax credits that are in that program in order to supplement their income and be able to afford other things that they need. Um, TANF, um, which is the subject of this special issue, the eligibility rules and work requirements are not consistent and straightforward, and it makes participation extremely difficult stricter TANF policies, if you think about time limits for when someone can receive um, the benefits, are not taking into account whether someone has viable job op options in front of them. Um, and the stricter time limits are associated with worse health outcomes. Um, I'll give an example, for, in, for instance, in the capital area, where there's a very fluid population, people move from Virginia, to Maryland, to, to um, the district, um, the eligibility rules are entirely different. That's also true in the tri-state area where I live. Um, and for instance, people really want to live in New Jersey if they are going to access TANF, because if you're living in Pennsylvania, um, you're going to have a much harder time getting access to the resources that you need. Well, let me... Uh... Let me ask about the uh, administrative side of this. You mentioned uh, some of the easing of the burden on families in the wake of the COVID pandemic. Um, what's your sense of the gap between sort of the, the stated availability of benefits and the actual availability based on the requirement that families who want them have to go through various steps to obtain them? Well, it certainly depends on the program, but, you know, depending on the programming, there can be anywhere from uh, half of 
of families who are eligible programs to, you know, one in 10 um, people who are eligible for programs um, who are not receiving them. That ebbs and flows, so it's hard to put sort of your finger on it day to day. Um, but what it means is resources that certainly could drive towards ending poverty and ensuring that people have the resources they need to raise healthy and thriving children um, are not getting into the hands of people who need them. You know, it is striking to me, as you mentioned, the participation rates are highly variable across programs. And we actually know a lot about how to design a program to make take up high and how to design a program to make take up low. And if we wanted to simply adopt the elements of program design that make them more accessible, it wouldn't be terribly hard to do so because we actually have that knowledge. We just don't have the necessarily the political will to make those changes. Well, and what's interesting, even more interesting about this is many um, individuals know what programs they are eligible for because we've done such a good job as a nation thinking about um, how we educate people about programs. And I'm just going to state very clearly, education is not the answer. I was at a conference with VITA providers, and VITA is a program, just so people know, that helps people actually navigate the bureaucracy of filing the taxes and get the things that they need, like the earned income tax credit, like the child tax credit, and make sure that people can maximize their income. And these VITA site providers were saying things like, we have educated people. They know that the child tax credit and the earned tax credit are available to them. And we literally can't keep up with demand. And so um, putting resources into the hands of people who are helping with that navigation um, is one clear step that we could take that would make it so much easier for families to get um, things into their hand. But as I said earlier, we could actually see streamline and simplify these systems. Um, part of that is just simply saying that if we know that the IRS is one of the major benefits administrators and actually helps to match income so that people can easily understand whether they're income eligible for these programs, let's make that process easier. And we did it during the pandemic as part of the American Rescue Plan. We can do it now. We can do what works. Well, as we come toward the end, I, I want to note that your program brings together scholars who look at poverty and anti-poverty programs, but also look at it from a health dimension. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why it is important to bring these different fields together if your goal is achieving health equity. Um, at RWJF, our vision is a culture of health, and that is that means for us that we provide everyone in the United States a fair and just opportunity for health and well-being. And if anything, I hope this conversation has stressed how much economics and well-being are linked, because we do believe that the economy is in many ways our de facto governance structure. But we also see that so many decisions are being made solely because of their impact on economics. And without bringing well-being into the picture, we're really losing sight of why we need to engage the economy and what's most important for families in this country. We also know because of power, because of discrimination, because of racism, the story of groups who are most affected by these factors that hinder good health 
are often not participating in research. They're often not doing the research. Um, and so we have underrepresented rural and BIPOC scholars, um, and they need a platform to elevate this research. And we need to be able to tell the story of these researchers um, and the people who they are engaging. I'll say a few other things. Sometimes research um, done in silos can be one part of the elephant. And um, we all know that parable, but if we can't see the other parts of the elephant, um, we don't know what we're looking like. So being able to do some of the silo busting, bring multiple fields together um, who are doing great work is going to actually help us better get underneath some of these complex problems um, and design things at the system and structural level, not on a one-on-one -on -one basis um, where we often solve for one family, but not another. Um, and so I think as an organization that believes, that publicly states that using the best evidence available and openly debated um, to fund the best solutions and the best efforts possible, um, when research is one dimensional, we can actually engage that full story. I will just also say for far too long, we have not recognized that as a society, um, that a healthy and well one is one with an economy that includes us all. And so we can't move forward with one-stop solutions. And we're in a starting place. We're recognizing the importance and the integration of some of these income support programs, while not, again, the one solution, um, that bringing... Um, and supporting multiple parts in the multiple disciplines of research, learning, and evaluation fields allows for a more potent set of solutions that can really think about that shared interdependence, that collective responsibility that we have to each other, and a more inclusive economy. Well, let's uh, put this all together with my last question, if you will. You described the critical role that these programs play, an unambiguously positive role for health, but you also said they're imperfect, which they certainly are. If you could put forward one policy item related to income that you believe would be most supportive of health equity, the goal, what would it be? Oh, my goodness. Um, I didn't say it was an easy question. I just said it was my last question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I am really not good at these, um, at, at trying to say one thing. Um, and so I might <laughs> have to cheat. Um, but I really think that we have to revisit our social contract and how we think about and center uh, families at the heart of the social contract. Um, why? Because we do need to think about an economic vision. We need to think about different governance goals that recognize the wisdom of families um, and what they have been going through. Um, and we certainly need to think about our collective responsibility to each other and the great saying that we all win and we all when we all win. So that's a pretty comprehensive solution that's going to take um, take time. And certainly at RWJF, we believe that it's going to be generations before we can achieve all that. But as I look to what's promising in the field now, there's a set of 
um, programs and uh, innovations that are coming to the fore that actually really recognize that we should just stop putting barriers in the way of families getting adequate income and that we need to shift from production. And um, I'll name two because I can't name one. One is the, the baby bonds programs that are starting to surface around places in the country. And you should look to places like Connecticut, which are have, have started to pass, though haven't fully implemented, that say dignity is a birthright. Um, and we're going to invest in each child in order to ensure that everyone has an opportunity for prosperity. We need more policies like that. The second is in looking at the stimulus and how it was distributed to families, it was guaranteed income. It was income that said everyone should have a baseline that, that allows them to get the basics. And so we should start looking at those policies, the active ingredients of those policies, um, and the values that they, that they uphold in order to say what other programs should look like in order to create the most support that actually impacts all of us. Well, I think you did a fine job answering that last question, even though maybe it uh, felt like I was throwing you something too hard to tackle. Uh, Ms. Nandu, thank you so much for explaining the state of play here with respect to these programs, for providing an alternative vision relative to where we are, to where we need to be, for being a co-author on the uh, overview paper in our issue, and today for being my guest on a Health Podacy. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure, and thank you again for elevating these issues. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy.